Hello and welcome to the Psychedelic Christian Podcast, the conversation at the crossroads of faith and psychedelics. I'm Clint, your host, and I'm thankful and excited that you've chosen to join us. Enjoy the show. Welcome to episode 10 of the Psychedelic Christian Podcast. This being our first episode of 2022, I hope the new year is off to a great start for you, and I look forward to bringing you many shows in the year ahead of us. I really want to express my gratitude to all of you who listen and share the show. It means the world to me, and I can't tell you how thankful I am that the show is reaching so many people. Over the holidays, we've passed over a thousand downloads. I don't know if that's normal for a show with less than 10 episodes, but it seems like a lot to me, and I thank all of you for that milestone. Also, so far in a single day, the highest downloads was Christmas Day. I'm not sure why. Maybe many people were traveling and had long drives and flights and were looking for some Christian entertainment to occupy them during their travels, or maybe many people mentioned the podcast to friends and family during their holiday gatherings. Regardless, I'm very grateful, and if you would like to reach out and let me know why you were listening on Christmas Day, please drop me an email through contact at thepsychedelicchristianpodcast.com, and please put Christmas in the subject line. Spotify now has a rating system, so if you're enjoying the show on Spotify or any other app or podcatcher, please leave me a five-star rating and review. That helps us reach new listeners. Also, if you're interested, I was recently interviewed and shared a lot more of my personal story and thoughts on the Cucumber Talks podcast. I appreciate the guys over there for inviting me. We had a great conversation, and if you'd like to listen, I'll put a link to that podcast in the show notes. The Psychedelic Christian podcast was also mentioned by my friend Hunt Priest in a recent Ligare.org newsletter. I'll also try to add a link to that newsletter in the show notes. And if you're interested in the intersection of Christian and psychedelic ideas, you definitely need to cruise over to Ligare.org and subscribe to the newsletter. Ligare is the source for information in this realm. That address is L-I-G-A-R-E dot org. Well, that's enough chatter for now. Enjoy the show. Today we welcome Ashley Landy to the Psychedelic Christian Podcast. Ashley is an artist, writer, and homeschooler who currently resides in a small town in the Flint Hills of Kansas with her husband of 14 years, Stephen, their two children, two dogs, one cat, and dozens of chickens. Her writing has been published in Fathom Magazine and Ecstasis Magazine. Her artwork has been exhibited in New York, Los Angeles, London, and Melbourne and links to all of her work and appearances can be found at ashleylandy.com. Today, Ashley joins us to discuss her cherished Christian faith and the role that psychedelics played in shaping her life. Ashley Landy, welcome to the Psychedelic Christian Podcast. Thank you for joining us. Hello, thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here. Ashley, it's good to finally meet you, even though we're over Zoom here. (laughs) Yes, likewise. That is is the way these days. Yes. Could you begin by just telling us a little bit about your early life and any 
spiritual, particularly Christian, you know, influences in your life, um, maybe your your family's uh, religious history, and how that impacted the trajectory of your life? Sure. So I was raised in what I would say was a nominally Methodist family. My mother's family had been Methodist for several generations, and my father, despite being raised in Southern California, was raised in a pretty um, strict Southern Baptist family. I don't know how observant they were as far as going to church. Uh, he was raised, his father was abusive, um, so it was a complicated dynamic there. But I remember my father was not happy about how liberal the Methodist church was. We did go to church probably, oh, two or three times a month when I was younger. Um, my dad was also very busy with his business. And so, and like I said, he had many complaints about the Methodist church. So he sometimes wouldn't go. Um, and I do remember going to Sunday school and VBS. I, I always thought that was fun. I remember singing Jesus Loves Me. It was never a huge part of our family life. I don't remember ever cracking a Bible as a child or a teenager. I did get confirmed in the Methodist church when I was 12 or 13, but there again, I, I don't feel like I really retained very much. Um, and I was also very much not raised in evangelical subculture. So kind of those cultural touchstones that other people I know who were raised in, in very Christian households have, I, I don't have, you know, I don't know what they're talking about. I can talk about Fresh Principle there, but, but not any of the typical evangelical, you know, Christian kid shows. Um, and when I was maybe, I think when I was 14, my best friend kind of dragged me to church camp. And it was there that I was first public about the feelings that have been brewing in me for a while. And I said, you know, I don't really know if I believe any of this. I think I'm an atheist. And part of that was, was I think, purely teenage rebellion. But I also just feel like I never really had an understanding of who Jesus was. Um, and I certainly, I don't blame my parents, you know, I don't blame, they both got much stronger in their faith as they got older. But I just never, I don't know, I don't know that I ever fully believed it in anything other than a like I am a child who is compliant way. And so it was, it was fairly easy for me to disavow all of it when I was 14 or 15. Um, it wasn't painful or, you know, there wasn't any mourning in that because I just had never really it owned it, I guess, or never really understood it. And then when I, when I got into high school, I, you know, was a full-blown atheist. I was very into reading like existentialists and, nihilist authors and I've always loved reading and um so that was kind of my gateway to this whole new world of countercultural thinking I was really into different subcultures of music uh, I worked at a record store in high school so I was definitely exposed to a lot of counterculture I guess you could say um and was very attracted to that um and so I just kind of left Christianity behind and never really looked back at that age did you have a community of people that, that you resonated with there or was being an avowed atheist uh, a bit of a loner aspect or did you have a community of people who kind of sympathized with you? And Yeah, I think in the, the circles that I ran in, as far as my friendships, it was just kind of taken for granted that you would not be a believer, you know, that pretty much everybody was an atheist. Um, 
I think it would have it would have been like frowned upon, <laughs> you know, to express any kind of faith. And so the the friends that I did have, you know, in middle school and early high school who were believers kind of faded out of my life as I got more deeply involved in um, I don't know, for lack of a better word, counterculture and and going to shows and seeing bands and drinking. So yeah. Now, I asked that because, you know, my, my experience, I was, you know, raised in a small town. Yeah. And so it was almost the opposite. Like if you were an avowed atheist, that would have definitely put you on the outside. Even people okay. who, who had no Christian lifestyle yeah. still had kind of this nebulous, you know, Christian concept okay. as a reference point for their, their spiritual walk, I guess you might yeah. say. Yeah. And for me, it was, was the opposite. I was in an urban area. I went to a high school in mid, well, ironically, though, it was a Catholic high school that I went to uh, in Midtown Kansas city. But I remember we were always sneaking out of mass. We were supposed to go to mass once a month and and we were always sneaking away and, and had a teacher that kind of supported that. And we all rolled our eyes at it. And I, I'm sure they're absolutely sure there were many girls who were devout Catholic. It was an all girls school uh, who were devout observant Catholics in that school, but but the people that I ran with were not. And um, I should say my parents were very upset by my atheism, even even though they weren't necessarily um, devout Christians while I was growing up. It was very upsetting to them. And I remember arguing with my dad a lot about it. And and I should say, I do remember when I was a child having um, kind of like existential discussions with my dad about God and and who was God and, and how could the universe be infinite and what is infinity, you know? So kind of those really big questions. And, and I look back on, I look back on that fondly. So having a, you know, an atheistic approach and you found yourself surrounded by people who were, who were not, who didn't accept, you know, a Christian framework, I guess you were obviously probably there was a party culture. There was yes. plenty of drinking and such. Uh, how did, yes. Did you adopt that culture like easily? Did it seem to uh, make sense? Did it seem to be a positive way of engaging with the world? Yes. And I, I unlike you, I know I listened to in, in your podcast where you're introducing yourself and your um, your history. I didn't have any I didn't have any inhibitions about trying drugs. I didn't feel like this is immoral. I, I mean, I remember the D.A.R.E. program, you know, and I actually won my fifth grade D.A.R.E. essay contest. <laughs> so, but I just really didn't have any, my dad was a heavy smoker, which obviously, you know, nicotine is not, um, it's a highly addictive drug, but it's not really so much a mind altering drug. I just didn't really have any compunction at all about, I actually didn't try drinking until my senior year. The first time I drank, I got completely drunk at a friend's house. And it was a situation where her parents knew that we were there drinking and we're okay with it, I guess. And then I think I did try weed in high school once. And I don't know if I just didn't know how to, you know, inhale properly, but it didn't, it didn't do very much. And um, the first time I really got high on marijuana was my freshman year of uh, college. And that was not a good experience. I uh, took a hit from a water bong, which is a very, a very strong way of, of consuming marijuana. And I got super paranoid. And then I just left the group of people I was with. I went off by myself and I was like super paranoid and was having actually like auditory hallucinations. <laughs> and so that was not a positive experience. So after that, I was just kind of like, I'm going to stick, I'm going to stick to drinking. There might've been a few more times someone had a joint, you know, in there, but 
really throughout most of college, um, alcohol was my drug of choice and led to many destructive, uh, very unfruitful situations, um, depression, um, which is something that I've, I've always struggled with, certainly exacerbated that. And, um, but I kept, you know, going back to it because it was, it was there, it was available. It was part of the, I went to a large state university. It was part of the culture, at least among the people that I was friends with. Um, so yeah, and it wasn't until my senior year of high school that I had a friend who brought around some psilocybin mushrooms and that was my first psychedelic experience. In high school? Oh, no, I'm sorry. That was my senior year of college. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, um, if you don't mind, tell us a little bit about that experience. What, and, and before you explain the experience, what kind of, uh, expectations did you have? Hmm. Um, I was, I was quite psychedelically naive. Like you were, I didn't necessarily, I mean, I hadn't really been around hippie culture, you know, I didn't, I didn't, you know, like anyone, I think I read the electric colloid acid test when I was in high school and read some of the beat poets and Allen Ginsberg. So I, uh, and I liked Bob Dylan. So I had, you know, had read, I guess, about these experiences, but as you know, like the experiential element of psychedelics is it's, it's one thing to read about it and it's quite another to actually experience it. But I think I really didn't have many expectations at all. I mean, I'd heard of a bad trip, but I didn't really know what that would entail or what that would mean. Um, I remember we, I took it with um, my friend, my best friend and her boyfriend and our, actually our other friend who brought us the mushrooms ended up throwing up and he ended up leaving and going to a party. So, but I just had a lot of fun that night. It was just really fun. I wouldn't say there was anything necessarily spiritual about it, except that it felt very enchanted. Like it felt like a, it felt like a fairy tale in some ways. I found it very interesting. You know, I put on records and listened to the music, like, and how warped it was and how it cut in and out and swelled and, you know, decrescendoed. And, and I thought that was really interesting. And I just enjoyed looking at things, looking at images. Um, and we did venture outside after a few hours. And that was a strange experience because there were, you know, college campus at 11, 12 at night, there were a lot of drunk people out. <laughs> so that was, that was odd, but um, I woke up in the morning, felt great. And I, I just thought that was fantastic. That was awesome. That was really fun. That's, that was, it was unlike anything that I had ever experienced before. And that trip, there was no negative aspect to it. Like, um, I wouldn't say it was particularly deep. Like I didn't have any of what I would have considered spiritual revelations or, or like deep emotions of any kind, which is, I'm very emotional. So <laughs> kind of unusual for me, but it was just it was just fun. It was just fun. Yeah. And, and, and beautiful in some ways, you know, aesthetically interesting. Just not to get off too much of a tangent, but my first experience, I was also in the presence of some drunk people. Uh, did you, did you engage with those people at all? Because when I, my experience with them under the influence of the mushrooms, I experienced them as very adolescent and very cartoonish yeah. in their in a way that I had never observed, you know, drunk people. Yeah. Because I was yeah. used to going to keg parties and, right. and, and all that stuff. 
but under the influence of the mushrooms almost had this i don't know i i, I feel somewhat guilty it's like i had this <laughs> superiority thing going on mm, i guess you know i yeah. viewed them as like oh look at these adolescent weirdos you know they're <laughs> right. they're foolish they're under the influence of alcohol look at them you know yeah. and they just seemed really silly in a way that i'd never observed people who had been drinking too much mm, yeah i can definitely relate to that i remember it's interesting, although I was pretty psychedelically naive and, and wasn't taking this, you know, wasn't taking any kind of preparation for this experience seriously. I remember I had gone to a thrift store in town and found this like crazy looking gypsy dress with bells on it. And I decided I was going to wear that. And then I had like a bandana around my head or something. I don't know what I thought I was doing, but it seemed appropriate. And then when I was under the influence of the mushrooms, it seemed completely appropriate. And so I remember when we ventured outside, there was a girl and a boy, young man, young woman walking. And when the girl saw me, she just started cracking up and she said, you have got to be kidding me. And I remember just feeling like so confused, like, why would, why would she make fun of me? You know, but I, I wasn't hurt, but I was just like so confused. And then I remember there was a group of um, Japanese or Chinese exchange students who were riding by on bicycles and they were all laughing and speaking in, in a, you know, Mandarin or Japanese. And um, I just remember like being so confused by the whole outside world. And, and there was like a, you know, there was a sadness about like seeing the drunk people. And I remember probably in that moment, I thought like, why would anybody ever do that? You know, like, why would anybody ever get drunk and probably resolved in my head not to do that again of course I did um but yeah there was like a like you said like a cartoonishness to it I guess and like a feeling of futility about it like why would anyone why would anyone choose to do that you know so yeah how did that that experience what, what did it leave you with in the days and weeks later like did you you know kind of follow it away as like wow that was really cool or did it I don't know. Did it leave you looking deeper, more introspectively, or did you just think, go go back status quo? And I think uh, both. I I was still an atheist because, like I said, that time there didn't feel. To, I, I don't know. I just I I didn't feel there was anything spiritual about it, or I you know didn't feel like I had encountered God of any kind. Um, I just knew that I wanted to do that again. Like I wanted the experience of that again. And so it was maybe, you know, I kept asking around, asking people about it. And, and I did feel, you know, as, as we'll get to for all the negative effects that psychedelics eventually had on my life, I did feel like I at least temporarily shrank back a bit from the binge drinking culture. Um, and I have to say too, I had a, a horrible trip on LSD when I was 24 and I smoked the last cigarette I ever smoked and I felt like I was inhaling trash. So, you know, I could put those in the plus column um, of things that psychedelics did for me. But yeah, so I, I kept looking for mushrooms, asking around. I think I had maybe in a few months after that experience, I graduated college. And then a few months after that experience, I had, I found mushrooms again, had another trip there again. It was just more or less a good, a good time. There was a childlike aspect to it that I really enjoyed that felt like um, a form of freedom and like a lifting of a burden that I hadn't felt in a long time. And that was really appealing. 
And um, so did mushrooms a, a few more times over the course of the ensuing year. I had one time where that was a really strong, you know, you, you never know what you're getting necessarily. You never know how strong it's going to be. And had one dose that was really strong. And I remember I really felt like I became Bob Dylan <laughs> on this trip. And um, so that was a, that was an interesting experience, but up to that point had only had what I would characterize as good experiences, positive experiences, hadn't had a bad trip. And then in the, let's see, the following summer after I graduated college, I was um, living on my own in an apartment in Midtown Kansas City. And I met a man who was kind of pursuing me and I wasn't really interested, but I asked if he had you know, mushrooms or connections to mushrooms. And he said, no, but I have some LSD. And up to that point too, I should say what was happening simultaneously is I, I felt like despite, you know, that number of positive uh, experiences on mushrooms, I, I was still an atheist and I felt this drive, this compulsion to be able to prove my atheism and like be really solid, you know, and it's ironic. It, it never even occurred to me like, well, maybe I should investigate whether it's actually true. I was like, no, I'm already decided. I need to be able to defend this. I need to be able to refute Christianity, you know, on every level uh, very soundly. And so I, I read a bunch of the new atheists. Um, I was really big into Christopher Hitchens. And I just remember one night I was reading Christopher Hitchens's new book and I just felt so empty. I felt like, you know, if, if this is the truth, then why, like, why is the truth so vacuous and so hollow? And so like, it felt like very like devoid of color and devoid of mystery because, because it is, you know, that hard certainty of the new atheist was like very devoid of mystery. It's just like, this is how it is, like, you know, this is how it is. There's no God. Um, there's no supernatural element whatsoever. You know, what you see is what you get. And it was a very, very hard line of certainty. And it just felt like it siphoned and sucked all the mystery out of the world. And it was very depressing. And so that was kind of how, so I got to this point of desperation where I felt like, I don't know if I can embrace this kind of ugly atheism. And I don't, I'm not sure if I believe this is true and I'm not sure I want to live this way, <laughs> but I couldn't yet, you know, surrender to the idea of God. And so anyway, all that to say, I was feeling kind of reckless and desperate. And so when this guy that I hardly knew said that he had LSD, I thought, why the hell not? You know, sure. And so he came over and he had, I mean, all this like hippie stuff. It was almost like a parody of, you know, uh, hippie culture. He had a singing bowl and he had, um, what else did he, I think he had like a didgeridoo and he had, he had some drums. He had a copy of Be Here Now by Ram Dass, who of course Ram Dass, uh, formerly known as Richard Alpert, along with Timothy Leary, got kicked out of Harvard for doing uh, psilocybin research experimentation on uh, students and, or with students anyway. So we took, we took the LSE and I thought, I, I thought I knew what I was getting into, you know, since I had had already had a number of experiences with mushrooms, I really thought I knew I was getting into, I was pretty arrogant about it. You know, I was like, this is fine. This is just going to be great. It's going to be so fun. And I remember I was watching, there must've been something that was reflecting the sunlight in such a way that it made a prism or I was just 
seeing the prism and there was like rainbow light pouring down from the ceiling and I was watching it and thinking oh it's just so beautiful and I remember I turned to my friend and said how does anyone ever have a bad trip and he looked at me horrified and he said well don't think about it and I was like oh you know <laughs> and it's just that moment you know everything turned on a dime which you know is is a risk inherent in psychedelics and I remember I just started this, this growing feeling of doom and anxiety and panic. And I had this little dog at the time who was a very nervous little dog. And he was like a rat terrier, Jack Russell, something or other. And um, he was like feeding off my, he could tell I was nervous. He could tell he was like skittering across the floor. So his skittering was, it was just like everything, everything I observed, everything in my environment was feeding into this idea that the world was ending. And I was trying really hard not to, I was like, okay, I'm not going to freak out. I'm not going to freak out. But finally I told my friend, uh, we need to call an ambulance because I'm dying. And he said, oh, no, 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 we can't do that. <laughs> you know, which made me even more freaked out. I was like, no, I really, I'm dying. And I remember he opened, he either handed me be here now and I opened it or he opened it and the page, it just fell open to, it said in order to take, I think uh, I need to look back at, my husband still has a copy, but I think in order to go on this journey, you must die. You must die. Like in really, I don't know if you've ever read um, Be Here Now, but it's got like, everything's printed in these very big capital letters. <laughs> like, so it was like, you know, in the midst of like, I'm peeking on LOC and I'm looking at this and I felt like there was this cataclysmic death, you know, what people, what people would describe as your classic ego death on psychedelics. And I just started weeping. It felt like the entire, like in my entire world just cracked open and light poured in. And I just started weeping and I started telling my friend all this stuff from childhood and not necessarily, you know, but I was, fortunately I was never abused. I was never, I had, in many ways I had a very good childhood, but I did have issues and I hated school and had some psychological issues and my parents took me to a psychologist but anyway that's another story but I just started like confessing all of this to him and he was just like whoa you know and um I remember so he was very much like a you kind of encounter a lot of these in the psychedelic world like high priest types you know like I think Timothy Leary called himself a high priest and Terrence McKenna you know like like I'm going to initiate other people you know into the psychedelic realm and there can be a lot of, um, I think, like inflated ego that goes along with that. Um, yeah, but these people worry me. Yes, yeah, for sure. And this guy was <laughs> was definitely like that. And so he showed me this movie, The Holy Mountain, and which is a, um, I don't know if you've heard of it, Alejandro Hodorowski. It's a popular. It's a very bizarre movie, <laughs> totally bizarre. But he was like narrating everything and telling me the meaning of everything. And and at that point, I just really wanted to retreat and be alone and try to process like this cataclysmic thing that had just happened to me and I remember feeling like I don't I'm not even sure if that was good or bad what just happened to me like it was just so destabilizing and so uh nuclear that I didn't even know how to like how to process it you know in in light of the life experience I had had heretofore like it just didn't didn't make any sense and I remember thinking, well, I might do that like once a year, maybe. But then within, gosh, within a couple of weeks, I was on the hunt for 
LSD again. And I know a lot of people love to say that it's not addictive and I don't think it is addictive by the same mechanism that like heroin or cocaine are addictive. But I do think I became psychologically addicted to the, to the experience, to the sense of like adventure, to the sense of escaping mundane life, you know, and having this very dramatic experience, whether it was good or, or bad. So, yeah, I feel like there began kind of my love affair with psychedelics and LSD in particular, because LSD um, really like, rocked me in a way that the mushrooms had not. And I just found it very, very dramatic, like the death and rebirth element of LSE I found very appealing. And, and also it was just, it was more available at that time in Kansas city. So there's that too. So, so yeah. I want to ask you about a few things that we kind of bypass, but I want to definitely get back to all that for sure. Very quickly, Bob Dylan. I mean, Saying that you felt like or you thought you were Bob Dylan, Uh that makes total sense to anyone who's had an in-depth experience on psychedelics. It it sounds silly when you say the words, but for better or worse, in that space, either you are somehow tapping into the collective conscious and, and finding another person out there and somehow resonating with them, or you're deluding yourself that you feel that way. One of the two, but either way, it feels so intimately, you can feel so intimately connected with someone else that you feel like you are that person. It can happen. I completely understand that feeling, uh, regardless of whether it's real or not. Right. I know exactly what you mean. Yeah. Um, And on defending, like defending your atheism, um, I, I don't know if it's just kind of native to that time in your life, like your early 20s, you're trying to carve out like who you are and your spiritual direction, you know, because I was in the same space. I was just on the other end of the spectrum. I was trying to carve out this very, I was trying to articulate conceptually exactly what my Christianity was. Mm-hmm. You know, I wanted to box it in and I wanted to be right about everything. And then I wanted to go tell everybody else where they were wrong mm-hmm. about this Bible okay. passage or that. Yeah. So yeah. I think I think that's natural, regardless of whatever your religious you know paradigm is. I think a lot of people kind of in their early 20s want to, you know, they want to set up shop and they want to defend yeah. their beliefs. And I think that's probably because you haven't been, you know, kneecapped enough times and <laughs> humbled, you know, yes. you got all the you got all this you know, feel like there's, yeah, yeah it's a very zealous time. And, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And hubris. Cause you haven't, you haven't been seasoned really. You haven't been beat yeah. down by the world yes. <laughs> enough. Well, and I, there's a pastor, Andy Steger that I follow on Twitter and he said something so insightful the other day. He said, you should also watch your dogmatism because the life of a beloved can blow your dogmatism wide open. And I was like, that is so true. <laughs> Some people would label me in some ways like conservative theologically on the more conservative end of the spectrum in some ways, but in others, like before my, so my sister um, died four years ago of a fentanyl overdose and it made me much less hard and fast on like 
who's in and who's out, who gets to heaven and who does. I don't know that I'd necessarily, and sorry, this is kind of going off on a tangent, that I would necessarily call myself a universalist, but I think that there's a wideness in God's mercy as the hymn goes that we can't even fathom, you know? And so I'm, I'm, I'm comfortable with affirming that Jesus is the way, the truth and the life, but I'm not comfortable with like saying whether someone is in or out, you know, when they, when they die or when they, you know, as they're living, like, so anyway, all that's, all that's a tangent. But like you said, I think there is a, well, that resonates know. with me a hundred percent. I, I yeah. appreciate you uh, saying yeah. that because again, as you get older and you have more experiences with humanity and more spiritual hurdles that life yeah. presents you. And like ambiguities, you yeah. know, the, where you, where you used to have certainty and it's not that, you know, like it said, it's, it's not that for me, like I will wholeheartedly affirm like Jesus is the way, the truth and the life. And I believe that, but I leave the rest to God, you know, in, in a sense, like, cause he's God and I'm not. I've become comfortable, very comfortable with mystery. Mm. I, I no longer require everything to be black and white or written in stone. Yeah. And I don't know if that's good for everybody. For me, it's good because yeah. I used to approach things dogmatically. Yeah. But, you know, life has presented situations that have humbled my faith. Mm, like yeah. you said, largely to do, largely to do with seeing people I love suffer. Yes. And so that's challenged that certainty paradigm that I had. Yeah. For me, it's been very, very cleansing and it's given me more compassion. And mm, yeah. Yeah. And I'm just, I'm really enjoying <laughs> having compassion and not yes. being, you know, yes. a hard ass about everything. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yep it's a much, it's a much better way to live. And I think it's a more, I mean, it's more in the spirit of Christ, you know, I like, read about Jesus's life. I see him interacting with people that way. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. He was so merciful and like the way, and yes, he spoke with authority, but he was also Jesus and I'm not, you know, uh, he did speak with authority, but most of the time when he was having to scold people and reprimand people and speak with authority like that, it was self-righteous. He was talking to self-righteous people, you know, but like people who were desperate and hungry and thirsty for mercy, he always treated those people with deep compassion and mercy. And he didn't, you know, make sure that they had the right theology, or the, you know, like, um, yeah. He treated them with dignity. Yes. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Well, tell, tell me a little bit about your artwork. Was that something that started in your youth or did you develop that after, you know, like your psychedelic experiences? Um, So I did enjoy drawing as a child. And then as a teenager, I, I wouldn't say I was like as prolific as, you know, some people who are artists as adults, they say, oh, I was always doodling. I was always drawing. And I'm like, no, that wasn't, that wasn't me. I did enjoy it, but um, I wouldn't say it was necessarily even my primary interest in childhood. I always loved reading. That was probably my primary interest. But after my psychedelic experiences, I, that I certainly I do feel like that. And I, I want to be cautious. I feel like everything I've said so far, it sounds really positive about psychedelics in it, you know, in a way, in a way I am grateful for my experiences because I feel that God has worked them for good in my life. 
For me, there were absolutely diminishing returns. And later on, there were downright traumatic experiences that um, I feel like in some ways, maybe I'm still healing from, or up until a few years ago, even though I haven't touched psychedelics in eight or nine years, I was still healing from. And so by the end of my, I don't know, psychedelic career, <laughs> whatever you want to call it, I, 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 I felt like I had been, been through the ringer. Like there's this book called Be Not Content. And sorry, I'll get back to the artwork, but <laughs> I just kind of want to like issue a disclaimer. And, and I know, and I, that's why I appreciate you having me on the show. Cause I know that we don't necessarily agree on everything in relation to right. psychedelics, but the fact that I appreciate the fact that you're, you know, willing to hear a different perspective. And let um, me interrupt real quick. Let's, yeah. let's get to the artwork later. Okay. And let's, let's, okay. Do, let's deal with this because I think this is, okay. this is uh, a much more, I don't know, maybe not. I, I think it is a much more foundational part of your story. Okay. So, so okay. go ahead go ahead and develop that. Explain how you were, you know, experiencing psychedelics and they seemed at least to some degree, maybe a positive distraction from the existential angst in your life. But, yeah. but inevitably you found that, that you weren't benefiting from yeah. that, correct? Yeah. Yes. And I think I just completely glommed onto them as they, they were my way in truth and life. You know, my kids are, my son is huge on the Mandalorian and he's always saying, this is the way, <laughs> you know, and that's how I felt about psychedelics. Um, I felt like they had, you know, because I felt like they had afforded me my first, maybe not my first, but certainly my most dramatic peak into, or like entrance into the world of, of the supernatural or a world beyond this world. Um, that I had ever experienced. Like I felt like they were the way. And I I would have said that I believed in God after that first LSE experience, but I had no, like that idea in my head had no grounding. To me, God was this, like, to me, God was LSE in a way. I would say that that, that was true. I wouldn't have, well, actually I might've said that because there was this quote from Ram Das that I always liked where he said, he said that he believed LSD was the second coming of Christ. Like it was Jesus Christ. And I was like, oh yeah, that totally makes it, you know, this is that like without me having ever read the gospels or ever, you know, cracked a Bible. And so I, I just got completely preoccupied. I mean, I would take LSD. Sometimes I would take it with friends, but a lot of times I just take it by myself. And I found that I became increasingly alienated from reality. It was, I felt like I was creating my own reality that was centered around LSD and the psychedelic experience. And I think one of the problems with that and one of the problems I see in psychedelic culture is like, there is no center because the psychedelic experience can be so wildly variable and it can lead people to believe in aliens. It can lead people you know, to believe some people have incredibly hellish experiences. I know Terrence McKenna himself had a completely hellish experience later in his life on, on mushrooms and that really shook him to his core. And so, yeah, I, I was doing it a lot by myself. There was no spiritual ground, I guess. Like I said, I would have said that I believed in God, but I remember there was one night I had taken LSD by myself and had had a fine time, you know, and I just after I'd peaked and was kind of coming down, but still very high, I decided to go and it was like midnight <laughs> looking back. I'm like, this is so unsafe. And, you know, in the middle of a city, uh, I was 23 and I decided to to go out and see if I could on the sidewalk and see if I could find anybody that I knew. And I did run into a friend who actually 
is a militant atheist to this day. And I remember we went into this bookstore and I was dancing around, you know, I was just high as a kite. I was dancing around and, and my phrase that night, like the, my mantra that night had been like, I am infinite love, light, magic, truth, beauty, kindness, or something, something like that. I don't remember the exact order of it. And I kept saying that over and over again. And there was some, of course, you know, middle of the city, it's like Saturday night, midnight. So there are lots of drunk people walking around outside and, and a, a group of drunk people walked by howling and laughing and, and being really loud and raucous. And I remember I turned and said like, they are not infinite love, light, beauty, kindness, truth, magic, you know, and my militant atheist friend turned and yelled at me like, well, maybe they just haven't realized it yet. And I was really like, so, you know, it's, it's very humbling to be like humbled by an atheist. I mean, granted, I wasn't a Christian at that point, but I just felt like psychedelics began to divorce me from reality rather than drawing me more deeply into reality, which I think is the, I hate to say it's the goal of Christianity because that sounds wrong, but like the, one of the fruits, I guess, of knowing and loving Jesus Christ and he himself being our peace and he himself being the, the end or the goal, like I said, goal sounds wrong, but like it draws us more deeply into the reality which God has provided and which is very good. And right, right. Wisdom um, and yeah. understanding should be a byproduct of yeah. the Christian walk, I would right. think. Yeah. And so I feel like, you know, whereas by contrast, I feel like psychedelics were divorcing me from reality. And and full disclosure, like I became so unhinged during that point that I actually ended up well, my parents checked me into a psychiatric hospital. Um and uh, I just hit a place of, I just hit rock bottom, you know, and I feel like I was wildly swinging between being really high and being really, really low. And, and um, it was just, it was a bad, it was a bad place. But once I got out of the psychiatric hospital, I was only in there for a week, maybe I immediately, <laughs> immediately went back to doing acid. And, um, but, and I tried a antidepressant for a while and I didn't like it. And, but things slowly, psychologically, things slowly started to get a little better. I met my husband uh, that spring and we got, he loved LSD too. Actually, we met at our acid dealer's house, who was also a mutual friend. And that's a fun story to tell in church, by the way, when people are like, oh, how did you meet? <laughs> um, God and, works in uh, mysterious ways. You're right. He sure does. And so, um, yeah, we, we, I mean, that was like our hobby was taking acid um, we got married really quickly. We got engaged after three weeks and we got married after a month and a half and we'll be married 14 years this summer. So by the grace of God, Congratulations. <laughs> thank you. Um, gosh, it's hard to summarize this whole um, trajectory, I guess. I think it was after I met my husband that I had a couple of trips that were deeply, deeply, deeply traumatic and through, you know, through no fault of my husband's obviously, um, and I had had a couple of bad, you know, a number of bad trips already, but it was never enough to make me quit though. I think I kind of adopted the new age adage and, and you'll see this a lot in the psychedelic world. Like there's no such thing as a bad trip, you know, cause you can learn from every bad trip. And I think that's hogwash. I mean, the reality is that there are trips that are deeply traumatizing and you can experience mm -hmm. deeply traumatizing things in psychedelics. And so there is such a thing as a bad trip. Oh, and I should add that I was also into amphetamines, which that was also a big part of 60s acid psychedelic culture. 
I would get them from a friend and I would never take them at the same time as psychedelics. Cause to me, the psychedelics were very sacred. And then the amphetamines were like something that helped me express myself artistically. You know, the next day I would draw, just draw for hours and hours, you know, take an amphetamine and just draw for hours and hours and hours. And I remember one day I finally, it was after we had had our first child, our son, and I flushed those amphetamine tablets down the toilet. And I, cause I just realized like how wrong, it, I don't know how wrong it was, but I still was like, I couldn't let go of, of the psychedelics. You know, I still felt like psychedelics could be a part of my life and that they were a good thing. And um, so we obviously during that period when we were having our two kids, you know, we weren't taking a bunch of psychedelics, except when we could take them to my parents' house or take them to his parents' house, you know, and have babysitting. And, and then we would. And I remember I got to the point where I just could not have a good trip, no matter what I did, no matter, you know, if I was very ceremonial about it. And I was very, you know, I was very attentive to set and setting. Like, I just could not have a good time anymore. And I think that really brought me to a place of spiritual desolation <laughs> yet again, of feeling like I thought that this was the answer, you know, like I really thought that psychedelics were the answer. Like they were the cure, they were the medicine. Um, and I, it was so disillusioning and disenchanting to like find myself in the exact same place that I was before. And in some ways even worse off for the wear because I had had these really traumatic experiences, you know, there are things that I wish I could unsee and unfeel. And, and uh, I just really feel like a really bad trip is a burden that human beings are not designed to bear psychologically. I mean, you can recover, obviously, and thank God people do. Some people don't. And so that was the point at which, um, well, my husband actually was the first one who he was seeing a therapist and his therapist said, you know, he told the therapist that he was, and my husband's always been interested in a very back then, you know, a very diverse array of spiritual interests. Like he would read Jewish mystical poetry, you know, he'd read the Bhagavad Gita, he'd read just, you know, a smattering of religious texts. And um, he had gotten really into reading the early desert fathers of Christianity and reading about Orthodox, Eastern Orthodox Christianity. And so this therapist said, oh, hey, you should try this church that my son goes to. And and so I remember Stephen, my husband came home and said, I, you know, I think I want to try going to this Christian church. And I was like, oh, no, no way. I am not going to a Christian church. And which is, you know, even though I was in the depths of this like spiritual struggle and feeling like I was completely lost and adrift, I, that was one thing that I was still like, no, 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 no. Cause I thought I already knew what it was. You know, I thought I already knew all about that and it's, you know, it doesn't work. It's nothing. It's for stupid people or, you know, whatever shallow, arrogant thing I would have said. And so he started going. And I think at that time I was pregnant with our daughter and he would go and take our son and I would work on artwork during that time. And I think finally, when I was like seven or eight months pregnant, I consented to go with him. And I remember just weeping near, we would always sit near the back, you know, I would insist we sat near the back and I didn't want to talk to anyone and I didn't want to, um, but I remember just weeping profusely during the worship time and that's it. You know, from there, it was a slow halting process still. 
Um, and I wouldn't say there was like one singular moment of conversion for me. I feel like it was a series of moments, but I say that was the beginning of, of me thinking like, oh, like maybe I don't know Jesus. Maybe I don't really know who he is, you know? And I think the last time I ever took psychedelics, I, oh, that was another thing I decided, well, maybe it's acid. Maybe it's the fact that it's chemical. You know, I need to go back to natural. So I got some spores. I grew my own mushrooms. And I think our kids were like, one and three or two and four. So we took them to my parents' house for the night. Of course, my, you know, my poor parents had no idea that <laughs> there were, was drug use going on. I had never told them. I'm sure they knew that something was wonky, but, um, and I thank God that, you know, he always protected our children, you know, from whatever insanity we were, you know, but, um, so that night I harvested, I had harvested my mushrooms, dried them, we blended them, drank them. And I remember like, as soon as they hit, I just straight back to that same place of like, is there any meaning in life at all? Is there any, and I found it interesting to read about Terrence McKenna's traumatizing trip that he had. That was the, that was the thing. Yeah, and it's interesting. His brother wrote a book about him. Dennis McKenna wrote a wrote a book about him, and I guess this section got edited out of it. <laughs> but um, he said that, according to his wife, Terrence McKenna's wife at the time, he like could not be consoled at all, and he just kept saying no meaning, no meaning, no meaning at all. And I remember, like that was the place I was in. I was like, is there any meaning at all to anything? And my husband was always, my husband actually will say to this day that he never really had a bad trip. Like he has some that were kind of uncomfortable or weird, but he never had a bad trip, but I certainly did. And I remember that trip, like kept trying to pick myself up, you know, and kept trying to like say and do things that I thought would make it better. And I remember I was just pacing around and around and around. And it felt like, it felt like a really profound analogy for what I was doing in life and with psychedelics, just taking them over and over again and expecting a different result. Um, and gosh, there's a lot more to that story. I feel like I, I also had a friend of a childhood friend at the time who was a devout Christian and, and we had been in touch again for several years and, um, she had children. So we would have play dates and, you know, I would blather on about whatever new age theory I was into at the time. And she would, she has like, a very, very gentle, humble, kind spirit. And she would just respond with, you know, she would say like, well, the Bible says da, 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 which coming from some other people that might be obnoxious, you know, or it can be, but from her, it was just always like, just very gentle and very sweet. And when I was pregnant with my daughter, she had a two-year-old daughter who was diagnosed with leukemia and passed away within three weeks. And it was just so tragic and, and just so heartbreaking. But I remember, I feel like seeing the way that they grieved, that they grieved with hope, you know, as Christians was really, was very influential for me, you know, seeing the way that they grieved. And, and it just really started me asking, or rather facing some of the questions that I feel like had been percolating in my mind for a long time about what does everything mean? Is there a God? Is he taking care of us? Why is there all this profound suffering in the world? Like what, what hope can we have 
in the face of all this profound suffering. And I feel like I found and I find the answers in the life and death and crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Had you lost anyone close to you prior to that? I had not. No, I had never. I mean, when I was a kid, our, our great aunt passed away and we were kind of close to her, but, but nothing, nothing of that caliber. And then, like I said, my, well, that was four years ago, my sister passed away and then very suddenly from the drug overdose. And then, then my dad passed away eight months after that. And um, at that point you were, you were having a faith walk. You were. Yes, I was. And I, but I experienced like in the face of death, I, I feel like going through that profound loss, like confirmed or it, it, it strengthened my faith in so many ways. Cause I felt God, the presence of God so closely. And I felt, I felt even more acutely, like this is the only, <laughs> this is the only hope there is, you know, if this, this story being true about Jesus and about his redemption, like this is really the only hope that there is to cling to. I've been to a lot of funerals in my life. Mm-hmm. For most of my childhood, you know, I was surrounded by people who grieved in a healthy way, mm-hmm. who, who grieved with hope and confidence. But I've also had relationships and been to funerals of people who did not share that hope. And it was, it, I definitely can see the contrast. Yeah. Um, I, I always feel uh, a debt of gratitude to the way I was raised because I was surrounded by people who had hope. Yeah. And yeah. Um, it, it gave me hope and confidence when I have to endure those, those painful uh, trials. And I, I can only try to sympathize with someone who doesn't have that hope, but I, I can yeah. never truly, truly, you know, understand how they feel because right. I've never had, emptiness i've never i've never felt that yeah bleak yeah empty you know potential well how did those experiences draw you closer to god instead of push you away or you mean the experience of grieving yeah yeah um or in particular the loss of your friend's daughter how you know at that point you're still not you know, a person of faith, how, how did that impact you and somehow draw you near just because of your exposure to that family? Did they kind of? Yeah, I think that was, that was a big part of it. And like I said, I, I, I was beginning to see, well, for a while, you know, I had seen the holes in my new age, you kind of patched together new age belief system, you know, and there's, um, there's kind of a, in the, in the new age world, which definitely there's a big overlap with the, the psychedelic world. And I, um, I would say probably like new age beliefs, which encompasses a huge range of things, you know, it's kind of a really huge umbrella. Uh, so not necessarily everyone who, you know, holds what I would characterize as new age beliefs would necessarily say that they're new age beliefs, but I, I feel like they're predominant among, you know, within psychedelic culture, but I was just beginning to see the holes in things. And I remember there was a lot of talk, like I would go to a meditation group and there was just always talk about like, 
it was all like love and light, love and light. And, you know, you just have to accept your shadow and do your shadow work and, and integrate your shadow. And, and I think some of that is like Carl Jung light kind of thing, but um, there wasn't an, it wasn't adequate. It wasn't adequate for what I experienced in the world, for what I saw in the world. You know, I, it wasn't redemptive, you know, it's like, you can say love and light all you want, but it's like, when there are toddlers dying, you know, like how, how is that, how can that hold? Like, I, I find that the story of Jesus Christ and the story of a God that would come down and suffer so profoundly and lay down his life for us. Like, that's the only God I would ever find worthy of worship, you know, like that's the only story. And I think sometimes we forget of like how gruesome and I, well, probably seven years ago, we watched Passion of the Christ, which for a long time, I, I really didn't want to watch that, but I, I found it to be a profound experience because it's like, we forget about, I don't know. I think we can get kind of inured to like seeing images of Christ on the cross and like, you know, thinking about the crucifixion. It's like, it was a, a gruesome, like just appalling level of suffering, you know, and for a God that would do that for us. Like, I find that to be the only story that's big enough to hold, to account for all of the brutality and suffering that goes on in the world, you know, and, and, and redeem it. And even that sometimes to be completely honest in my moments of doubt, I, that's probably the thing I struggle with the most. Like, you know, when I hear about something in the news of like a child suffering in a profound way or just some, I mean, there's more than enough tragedy to go around in the world. Obviously, like I struggle with like, God, was it really worth it to allow us this much free will? <laughs> you know, like, could it really be worth it? Like, is, are you really going to redeem all of this in the end? You know, and I, I, I wrestle with that quite a bit. Um, but like I said, I just find the story of Jesus Christ. Like I, I just did not find a depth in, in, and I can't say that I earnestly went that deeply into Buddhism or Hinduism, you know, at best, like it was like Buddhism and Hinduism light for me. I was very deeply into yoga and yoga philosophy and like the idea of detachment, you know, we overcome emotion by detaching from it. We overcome suffering by detachment. I was like, that just doesn't work for me like that just doesn't and I feel like the Christian story is the complete opposite of that I mean God in Jesus Christ was like so deeply immersed in and and felt profoundly like the suffering of humanity like you know he felt everything that we can feel like I, I just I find him to be the only adequate story I guess yeah sorry I don't know where I started with no. all that I <laughs> Well said. Well said. Um, I concur. So how did you find yourself from this kind of grieving person who is grasping for, you know, a spiritual anchor and end up find yourself as a practicing Christian? Yeah, it was definitely a crazy ride. Um, and I'm really grateful for the, cause like I said, I was so resistant to even setting foot in a Christian church. And the church that we landed at, Jacob's Well, the church in Kansas City, 
um, is just a wonderful place. I really miss it. But of course, we live two and a half hours away now, but we'll still go back when we visit. But they're very, a very orthodox, little o, orthodox Christian church. But there is like a lack of dogmatism in the sense that they, you know, nobody would like, overreact to me saying something crazy, you know, like in a Bible study or something. Cause I didn't know, you know, I, the, everything was completely new to me. I, you know, I didn't even know who Paul was. I was like, I knew he was in there, but I didn't know who he was. And so, you know, I feel like I, I had freedom to ask questions that were, you know, maybe sounded probably sounded really far out or like say, well, what about this? Or what about this? You know, and there wasn't like a, you know, there was no like pearl clutching. And um, it was, it's also just was a very loving church, like just very, just very loving, very welcoming. And so that, like I said, I, I don't know that I can point, well, I can't point to one particular moment where I feel like, I felt like I was struggling to understand, you know, we had been going there for a few months, I was struggling to understand. And this was after we had been, we had been going there for a while and I was just struggling to understand. And I remember my husband and I both like tried all these ways to kind of like get around an Orthodox understanding of like for a while, my husband was like, I don't understand the Trinity. So I'm just going to call myself a non-Trinitarian Christian. And, you know, we were trying all these different, cause I was like, for, I think for a long time, I was like, I was so used to being a consumer in the spiritual marketplace, you know, like that's kind of, that's kind of the new age ethos. Like you take one thing from over here, you take one thing from over here and it's kind of like create your own religion. And it's just like this patchwork of, of different things without any, like, you know, often, I shouldn't say always often without any real depth to any of them. I think there was a moment where I understood like, this isn't like, I'm not consuming Christianity and like pasting it on to my pre-existing worldview. Like this is, this, this has a claim on me in a way, you know, like this is the ground. This is either the ground of everything or it's nothing at all. And that was a huge, just like intellectual turning point for me. And I think a heart turning point was after my friend's daughter, Joella had passed away. It was several months after that. So I must've, I already had my daughter, but um, she had told me that this hymn, it is well with my soul, which is, of course, a very popular Christian hymn. I'd never heard it before, but she said that it was really therapeutic for them and it really comforted them while they were grieving. And she, of course, told me the story behind it. The author of the hymn, um, Horatio Spafford, I think, he lost like his entire family. His wife survived, but like all his, his daughters were swept away at sea. And then he wrote it as well as my soul, which is just extraordinary. And I, so she, my friend had told me that that song was really comforting to her. And I put it on a playlist and kind of forgot about it. And then there was one spring day that I was sitting out on the porch, my children were playing and that song, I had the, you know, Spotify on in my living room and on the computer and that song came through the window and, you know, for some reason, I guess it's probably the Holy Spirit, like my attention, you know, just snapped to, whereas previously the music had just kind of been in the background and I listened to the lyrics and I was just overcome with emotion. And I feel like this understanding of what Jesus did and what he did for me and the meaning of it, of course, the meaning of what, you know, like you said, there, 
there is also like so much mystery inherent in that. And I don't think we can even grasp the scope of what he did, you know, but um, there's a quote, there's a Eugene Peterson quote that I love so much. I think about it a lot. He said, um, mystery is not an absence of meaning, of meaning, but the presence of more meaning than we can comprehend. And I'm like, oh, that's so good. <laughs> you know? That's great. I like yeah. that. I'm going to yeah. steal that. Yeah. Isn't it good? Yeah. So as a person who fully embraces the Christian faith, but also a person who has had probably deeper psychedelic experience than 99% of the rest of people on the planet. That puts you in a unique position. I read something on a, I guess it was a blog. Someone posted about you. They quoted you as saying you were too trippy for most Christians and too <laughs> Christian for most trippy people or something to yeah. that effect. And I, I, I can kind of sympathize with that, probably not on the degree to which you can. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe psychedelics give you a a way of greeting information and experience in your day-to-day life that you kind of filter it through. Mm-hmm. I don't really have a way of separating myself from that, you know, because I was 17 years old when I used psychedelics. So my whole adult life has been in some ways, even though I've lived this very, you know, mundane uh, work a day you know, Christian lifestyle for my whole adult life, it's still in some ways been filtered through the way I view the world through Mm -hmm. a psychedelic lens. And that's why I ask about your artwork because your artwork is, you know, Christian, but it's also, um, I don't know any other way to describe it other than just completely psychedelic, you know, the prisms and, so obviously you still interpret the world to some degree through that paradigm. Yeah. And yeah. I don't know if, and, I don't know if you can even comment on that. It's just something yeah. I've observed. No, that's, I mean, that's true. It's like, I feel like, and it, you know, it's hard for me because, and like I said, this is one of the things that we might not see eye to eye on. Like if any individual were to come that I know were to come to me and said, say, Hey, should I try psychedelics? I'd be like, I, I think you should just wait on the Lord. I don't think you should, you know, but at the same time, I feel like the Lord has redeemed in, you know, in many ways, redeemed my psychedelic experience. And I can't deny that it shaped who I am. Like, you know, it did just in the same way that all of our life experiences shape who we are. And it, like you said, it, it shaped how I see the, I mean, I think Jesus Christ has much more shaped and redeemed the way that I see the world, but this was a part of my experience. And like I said, I feel like God has worked it for good in my life. And I I've questioned at times, like when I've gone through more like fundamentalist chapters of, of my walk with Christianity of like, Oh, should I be doing this? You know, is this going to be interpreted as me promoting people taking drugs? But I just feel like, like I said, like, I just so firmly hold, hang on to Romans 8, 28, you know, that God uses all things for good in the lives of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And I feel like just artistically, that's my, that's my identity. And I love, and I've, I mean, and I've always loved and been drawn to like really intricate patterns. And that's just something I've always been drawn to. I mean, honestly, we find those patterns in nature, you know, we find those patterns in. I have little succulent cacti that have those patterns, you know, that have like mandala looking patterns. Um, so I guess I view it as like, I'm 
co-opting, you know, psychedelic imagery into a Christian lens and not just co-opting because I, I think that implies that it's like, I'm stealing it. Like, this is just authentically who I am, you know, as a Christian and as an artist. So, so yeah. I think you're right. Those things aren't inherently psychedelic. I, I would guess they're really yeah. more inherently natural. Yeah. Um, it's just, there's something about the psychedelic experience that really makes those things surface. And it, it gives you maybe a, um, a pattern recognition for those things, like yeah. you, you're, you're more readily see them in the natural world. Yeah. Um, maybe yeah. because you've had some kind of internal experience with those patterns, Yeah. yeah. but I definitely respect your willingness to be open and discuss this because I'm trying my best not to draw conclusions. You know, I want to hear from Christians who've had these experiences and are willing to share them because I feel like people like myself, people like you and your husband, we're positioned in a unique way mm -hmm. just to speak to both groups. Yeah. And if we can be kind and compassionate and sympathetic to people on both sides, maybe we can allow them to, uh, you know, to greet each other with more love and, and compassion and humility. I hope because so. Yeah. There's a lot of headbutting out there, you know, yes. um, over this and it's, it, it's understandable. Yeah. And I think, like you said, like, I think it's important for us to have, to have a voice in it because I think, and I think you said in another of your podcasts that I listened to, like, the psychedelic world for the most part is like very disdainful of organized religion and, and I'd say Christianity. And that was my experience being pretty immersed, immersed in a network of people or group, you know, social network of people who were frequent psychedelic users. You know, a lot of the kind of poo-pooing of psychedelic drugs that you'd see like in articles online or Christian from Christians are people who, and I, I'm sure they mean well, you know, but it's like, it's clear they've never actually taken psychedelics. And so I'm like, people aren't gonna listen to right. that, you know? And there's, um, I do think that there will be, just like there was in the sixties, you know, with the Jesus people movement, like there will be an opportunity for a large revival. I think there will be, someone used the term on Twitter, I love this, they said psychedelic refugees. You know, I think perhaps we can agree on this, like that, psychedelics cannot offer the things that some of the really passionate proponents say that they can offer. Like they can't fix all your problems. They can't, they can't give you, I don't think they can really give you a religion that has any kind of center grounding. There's a lot of things that I feel like really outlandish claims people make about them that I'm like, they can't deliver that, you know? And so I think there will be a lot of people for whom those promises did not deliver who will be hungry for the truth, you know? And the same guy who used the term psychedelic refugees on Twitter, he said, he said to me, and I thought this was really insightful. He said like, churches will have to, will need to take the psychedelic experience seriously. Like when someone comes, you know, who's, you know, maybe they're confused, they're feeling lost. Psychedelics didn't, didn't deliver the promises that they, they made or that the most passionate proponents of them may have made. And I feel like in some corners of Christianity, perhaps there would be the attitude of like, well, it's all purely satanic, you know, it's all from the devil. Like, that's just, that's all it is. And I don't think that dismissiveness is going to work <laughs> like as far as like 
evangelizing, you know, or like inviting people into the story of Jesus Christ and the Christian faith. So like you said, I think, I think it's important for us to have a voice in it. And like, um, I hope I'm not being presumptuous when I say like, I don't think there are that many of us out there, you know, from what I've seen. So yeah, I'm really, I'm thankful that, thankful that you're doing this podcast and thankful that you were open to having me on, even though we don't necessarily, you know, completely see eye to eye on perhaps the, the potential for a role of psychedelics in Christianity. Well, I think we probably agree on a lot more than we disagree on. So probably, yeah, for sure. And it doesn't sure. matter. It doesn't matter if we completely disagree with each other, a healthy yeah. discussion, being able to hear, you know, everyone's perspective. That's, that's yeah. what I'm, that's what I want. And I, I think you, I think you're right. I think um, regardless of what positive applications I think there might be for psychedelics. They're never going to be enough to give you the spiritual satisfaction that we all crave. Right. Yeah. You know, I believe there's, it sounds corny, but I think there's a God-shaped hole in all of our hearts. Yes. And you can't stuff enough caffeine, cocaine, LSD into that hole to fill it up. Very true. Yeah. Well, what's the future? And present look like for Ashley Landy. What's she doing? <laughs> well, I'm so I'm working on a book proposal right now. I actually finished it, but I haven't submitted it yet. I'm having a couple of my friends look over it about I would really love to write a memoir um, about my and it's interesting because even a year or two ago, like to me, that was ancient history. I don't but I just kept seeing things, you know, on the Internet or wherever, like about there being this psychedelic revival and there, and I was like, huh, that's interesting. And, um, finally, and I read a couple, I read some like really depressing personal account. There was one in GQ that was written anonymously. And then there was one, a journalist named, and that one was just depressing about the guy getting like underground LSD therapy and the conclusions that he came to were like so dark and nihilistic and depressing that I was just like, oh my gosh. I mean, it was, it was heartbreaking. It was sad. And then I read another, there was one in a New York, the New Yorker by a journalist named Gia Tolentino. And she was describing how ecstasy in particular, like assisted or facilitated her journey out of the Christianity that she was raised with. And so at that point I felt like, man, I should, I should write about this, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I did, and I have had a couple pieces published in Fathom magazine and Exasis magazine, um, which are kind of like artsier Christian magazines. So I'm really grateful that there are those editors, you know, in those spaces that are willing to take a risk on publishing a piece about this. And so I'm writing a book proposal. I would love to write just like a memoir about my experiences. And, and like we discussed earlier, I don't, I don't want to write a like drugs, bad book, you know, that's not my, that's not my heart. That's not my lane. That's not my, you know, and I, I just don't think that that's the way to make Jesus appealing to people. I don't Um, don't think you have to take a side. I think you can tell your story and that's truth enough right there. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I just want, I want to make Jesus, I mean, Jesus is beautiful. Like it's, I'm not making Jesus beautiful, but like to tell this story in such a way that that glorifies God and and emphasizes the beauty of Jesus and who he is. So um, yeah, that's what I'm doing. And I do work on artwork here that I homeschool my kids. So I feel like, and they both play sports now. So I feel like there's like less and less time as they get older. 
but I am working on on a portrait, actually a, a portrait of my daughter surrounded by this really large um, circular pattern that's going to take forever because it's comprised of tiny little dots. Um, and I, but I framing that in the context of the, where the, um, Jesus says to the little girl, Talitha Kum, like little girl, get up and the girl, and he goes to the house and they're all already mourning and they laugh at him, you know, when they, when he says that she's just asleep. And so, um, so yeah, I'm kind of using like my daughter's image in, in the context of that, of that story. So, so yeah. Yeah, I think you need to write. I mean, I think your writing is very creative. It's very, it's very potent. It's very good. I've, I've enjoyed, you know, what little I've read so far. And I'll, I'll try to definitely link to those, that Fathom article in particularly. I found it uh, insightful. Thank you. Uh, are there any other resources that you would direct people to who may be on a path similar to yours? Um, you know, that's a hard question because like I was never a hippie in the strain of like Silicon Valley type, you know, I was always more attracted to 60s subculture. And there is this great book. It's really gritty. There's a lot of language in it. Just warning. And um, but it's called Be Not Content by William J. Craddock. And I actually wrote my article that I wrote in Ecstasis. I, I talked about it quite a bit and he did not come to a Christian conclusion, but I find that the trajectory of his experience with acid and being in this, he calls it a tribe of acid freaks in 60s California, um, the trajectory of like desperately searching for meaning and not finding it through repeatedly dosing himself, you know, with greater, greater quantities of acid. Um, I just find it like really insightful. It's kind of a forgotten, it's gone like in and out of print, but I think it is in print right now. I wrote a copy off Amazon like a year ago. Um, and I, I don't know, like I said, that's not, that's not a Christian book, but I just find it to be well-written and extremely insightful about and, and mirroring in some ways, sadly, without the same ending, like my own experience with, with psychedelics and, and beyond that, I don't know, like, that's like what I said, like, I feel like it's important that like people such as you and I, and, you know, the other people you've interviewed on your podcast have a voice in this because I don't see Christians really talking about it anywhere. You know, I'm sure there are some, probably some resources back in the sixties. And I know um, that there were people like the harvest church movement in California that kind of emerged out of the Jesus people movement. And a lot of the people involved in that. Oh, I did see that there was a movie coming out like a Jesus people movie coming out sometime soon it's really weird Kelsey Grammer is starring in it and then the guy who plays Jesus and Chosen is starring as Lonnie Frisbee who there's actually a documentary about Lonnie Frisbee too on YouTube I forget what it's called but he was um came out of like heavy drug use and became a Christian and was involved I think with the Harvest Churches in in the 60s so and I also um I wish more people would write books about it because I when in preparation for when I was on Unbelievable, that podcast, I interviewed just through a variety of sources. Like I asked on, um, I think a Facebook group I belong to and, and a couple other, like just casting a wide net, looking for people who were Christians who had extensive experience with psychedelics. And I um, interviewed by Zoom or by phone, like probably close to 10 mostly people from who were like now in their 60s and 70s you know who were heavily into it back in the back in the 60s or 70s and then I do have another friend who's about my same age who was heavily into DMT and is now a Christian and has left psychedelics behind but um 
that was just really fascinating to like, you know, get this like wealth of wisdom and experience from all these people who are like a generation older than me, you know, sure. and had all these experiences and took this, this same path. So um, I wish there were more, <laughs> I wish there were more materials about it. I wish there were more books about it. I think there will be because I've, I've heard statistics that now, I mean, I don't know exactly how they measure this, you know, cause most people don't talk openly about taking psychedelics, but that current usage of psychedelics is as widespread as it was, you know, during the peak of the sixties mm. hippie movement. So I think we definitely can anticipate more coming out. Yeah. So. And I think, I think what we're doing right now, this is going to give those people the confidence to speak up yeah. about their experiences. Yeah. Cause I mean, up until six months ago, you know, I had all this, these ideas shelved, you know, I didn't talk about it. Yeah. You know, with people because it was too taboo. And, you know, we all value the reputation we spent our life building to have love and trust and relationships with people that we value. And some people just can't maintain their respect for you if they learn that you've had these experiences, you know, and that's, I don't blame them. That's not their fault. Yeah. I guess you could possibly blame them for not being open minded, but I mean, we all are to some degree yeah um, especially when we're you know entrenched in our in our own values and we're not willing to just allow someone else to express you know what they've experienced in life yeah so but I like, understand you know. I understand the adversity and the tension and the unwillingness people have to talk about it I just um you know I, I hope that what we're doing here is opening the conversation where people feel like they can speak about their experiences without that negative um, societal impact, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. And like I said earlier, like, I, I do think that the church is going to have to take it seriously. You know, if we want to, I feel weird using <laughs> effectively evangelize to, but I mean, it's true, like to share the love of Christ and the beauty of Christ with people who have been deeply immersed in that world. Like, I just think we have to, we have to take it seriously and not invalidate or delegitimize those experiences. Mm -hmm. And I was going to say, <laughs> as far as, you know, like loved ones, not really being able to handle, you know, the, the knowledge of you, like my, um, my poor mother, until I really started writing about all this, I think she kind of like, had sensed that something had been going on back then, but didn't really understand. And, and now she has to like, you know, she, I told her I was writing I was right. One time I, about a year ago, I told her I was, I was submitting an essay about, about drugs. And she was like, ah, oh, you always write about drugs. Why do you? And then another time I was actually, we were over Thanksgiving or Christmas, we were at our house. And I, I, you know, since my, since I homeschool my kids, I don't get a lot of quiet time away from my kids. And I asked her if I could go, you know, in her room and use her computer and write something. And she said, she said, well, I guess so. What are you writing about now? Death, drugs, or mental illness? <laughs> I was like, mom. I was like, well, okay. Yeah. Like mental illness. But all still, things that Christians know? need to talk about. Right. Yeah. Because we all we're either, either our own experience or the experience yeah. of our loved ones. Yeah. Fall into those categories. Right. You know? Yeah. Yeah. It's real life. Let's yeah. talk about it. So we learn how to integrate that into the Christian life. You know, yes. we don't have to, we don't have to just pretend these things don't exist and wear blinders and right. pretend it's all picket fences and 
and steeples, you know, I mean, yeah. And we do that to our apparel. I mean, that's yeah. Yeah. Life is, life is gritty, you know, and you know, there's a certain beauty that we, that we kind of opine for in our beautiful stained glass cathedrals, which Mm -hmm. I love, but we, we don't need to, we don't need to put those things in good and bad categories like this, the stained glass cleanliness. That's, that's, life that's beauty that's holy yeah you know uh scraping chicken poo off your shoes is also holy you know it's like which i do every day by the way (laughs) you know mowing your lawn is can be holy you know Mm -hmm. it's it's uh, it's not separate it's not any less divine yeah yeah yes well ashley thank you so much for joining me and yeah thank you. you this is wonderful could you uh, direct people to somewhere where they can find your writing and your artwork? What's the best place to find you? Yeah, it's just so ashleylandy.com is is the best place. I think I have links to everything that I've had published elsewhere. And I have a blog on there and I have um, images of my artwork on there. So, Well, I'm sure people will be headed that direction. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing your story with us. And... I wish you God's grace and peace. Thank you. Likewise. Bye. Bye. I would like to once again express my sincere gratitude to Ashley for joining me on the podcast to discuss her experiences with psychedelics and her Christian faith. One of the conclusions that I draw from Ashley's story, and I hope to share with all of you, is that psychedelics are powerful medicines, and their effects on the life of the user are very subjective to the individual. For some of us, psychedelics appear to have had a positive impact, for others a very negative impact, and for others still a mix of the two. It is my conviction that psychedelics, like many other plants and chemicals, are tools that when used with discernment may have application in the Christian life, but psychedelics alone will never be the answer to life's problems. I believe that psychedelics can be a catalyst that opens our eyes to a more complete vision of God's beauty, goodness, and truth, but can never satisfy the longing to be united with the Creator. It is my personal conviction that ultimately that relationship can only be in a union with Jesus Christ and the Church. Thank you all for listening. Please like and share the podcast and join us in the next episode when we will discuss the topic of faith and psychedelics with another fellow Christian. And until then, may the Lord bless you and keep you.